Welcome. We're so glad you're joining us for a word in season with Doug Stringer and friends. Today, we are sitting in on one of our transforming leadership calls. We host these type of calls often and would love for you to be involved. Sign up for more info by visiting a word in season podcast.org. While you're there, would you take our two minute survey? Now let's welcome our host, Doug Stringer. He is joined by Ken Harrison, the chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers. They are going to encourage and equip you today with their message of hope. Your life matters greatly. Let's find out how. Well, it's great to have Ken Harrison with us. He is the chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers. His mission is to provide executive leadership and strategic direction to the ministry while inspiring men to be bold, humble, and ambitious about their faith. Ken has also serves as CEO of Waterstone, a Christian community foundation that gives away over $1 million per week to build God's kingdom. He started his career as a Los Angeles Police Department street cop in the notorious Watts Compton area, and there he received numerous commendations and awards. He has spent over two decades in the commercial real estate arena, both nationally and internationally, and after successfully building and growing his company, he sold the majority interest to Collier's International, the second largest commercial real estate company in the world. He stayed on as CEO of U.S. Valuation and Chair of International Valuation. He is also a Colson Fellow and has served on numerous local and national boards, including Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Colorado Uplift, Urban Youth Ministries, Corbin University, and Waterstone. He is also an author and corporate speaker, and Ken has appeared on numerous media outlets, including Fox News, The Huckabee Show, Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk, and The 700 Club. And with a long record of dedicated service in the ministry, uh, Ken Harrison leads Bible studies locally and participated in mission trips to Mexico, South Africa, Haiti, and the Philippines. He is also the author of Rise of the Servant Kings, what the Bible says about being a man available wherever books are sold. And he has been married to his wife for 29 years, and they have three children. And uh, we're excited to have Ken on with us today. I want you to take a moment before we go into some questions that I think that God has equipped you uniquely positioned you to invest in the rest of us, uh, a little bit about your story about how you even got involved in Promise Keepers. All of us know who Coach McCartney was, and of course, and I was involved in Promise Keepers back in the early day, and many of us that will be listening. How did you get involved and become the CEO and chairman of Promise Keepers? Uh, very reluctantly. And Doug, you know, I love your story, man. It's an amazing story about being a man of God and, and how you waited and God rewarded you with an amazing wife. I love that birthday story with your daughter. Yeah, after I retired in 2012, um, really exhausted from, you know, all that I had done. And, and I was going to do what the world says a good Christian man is supposed to do, which is nothing. You know, isn't that the American way, right? You work really hard so you can do nothing for the rest of your life and then try to be the first person at the line of the Golden Corral when they open the doors at four o'clock somewhere in Florida with your, you know, shorts on and your sandals and long socks. I retired and was planning on a life of doing what I wanted to do after a long life of working. And um, after about two years of that, I really actually enjoyed it. I, I got to read every book you ever wanted to read, you know, um, Luther's Bondage of the Will, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, you know, all these long books that no one ever has time to read. I like read them and skied and hiked and had a great time. And then I was really praying one day and the Lord came to me in this incredibly vivid way. And he said, um, 
Ken, I did not put you through everything I did and teach you everything I did so you could ski and hike for the rest of your life. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, are you willing to be as ambitious for my kingdom as you were for your kingdom? And then it came with a stern warning. Be careful of your answer. It's going to cost you your life. And I said, I don't know. You know, I just said, Lord, I don't, I don't want to give up my life. I'm sick and tired of leading people. I'm sick and tired of being stabbed in the back. I'm tired of firing people, tired of being sued. Um, you know, during the meltdown, when you're running a huge real estate empire, during that meltdown of 08, 09, and 10, I was sued 13 times. You know, none of them were had any credibility. It was just people looking for money. You know, I remember one of the lawsuits was somebody paid $60 million for a shopping center, and now it was worth $45 million. So somebody should pay them, you know, those kinds of lawsuits. So I was just so tired of the whole thing. I said, God, I'm just sick and tired of people, which is really a great thing you want to tell the God who was tortured to death for people is that you're sick of his people, right? <laughs> Moses, I'm not, you know. Um, Moses, I'll just kill everybody and start over with you. I, if I was Moses, I would have been like, let's go. You know, I was that tired. And um, so I wrestled with God for about two hours there in my closet, just in the dark. And uh, he showed me a vision of the fact that he would bless my retirement if I wanted to do that. I was looking for ranches up in Colorado and where I live and had that whole plan of skiing and hiking. And he showed me the judgment seat of Christ where um, I would have a nice little life. But at the judgment seat of Christ, I would have weeping and gnashing of teeth at a wasted life when I saw what I could have done had I obeyed him. And it still took me two hours to say, yeah, Lord, I mean, you knew the answer when you came to me. I've got to lay down my life and pick up my cross and follow you daily. But I just really don't want to. After that, he said, I'll tell you what I have for you when you're ready. It took four more years. And so in, in the end of 2017, I was teaching men's discipleship groups all over Denver. And um, a guy walked into my study who ran Promise Keepers, Raleigh, Washington, needed help. And I told him I wasn't interested in helping him. I was not interested in running a uh, dead ministry is what I said. Finally went to a board meeting just to help Raleigh out and help him get paid. And when I saw the mess that Promise Keepers was in, I literally yelled at the board and said, you're insolvent. And when I got done yelling at the board for how terribly it had been run into the ground, um, Raleigh nominated me to be chairman of the board. <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, I'll only come on if everybody quits because you guys have made a mess. And then I brought Promise Keepers into the foundation Waterstone that I run to close it. And it took two months. I got a bunch of attorneys to be able to close the foundation, pay off all the, or close Promise Keepers, pay off all their debt, but still protect the branding so that Promise Keepers didn't become a porn site. And at the very end of all that process, two hours before me and the only two guys left on the board because we needed three for a quorum, when we were two hours away from closing it, that's when the Lord showed up again. I said, remember that conversation we had in your closet? This was it. And I remember like thinking, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to run a men's ministry. And, you know, it has this huge brand, all these people who have, who love it, but now it has no money, no employees, no anything. The baggage that's going to come with promise keepers is something I want no part of. I mean, it, this is why I wrestled for two hours with the Lord, but he has, as you know, Doug blessed it unbelievably, not supernatural blessing to the point now where in three weeks, we're going to be at Dallas Cowboys stadium for the first promise keepers football stadium meeting in 20 years. Wow. I love the story. And I also remember a story you add to that where as a confirmation, because you wanted confirmation, you were in Colorado at a coffee shop or something. And, and uh, someone mentioned something that confirmed what you had been sensing. That's right. It was that morning that, that we were going to close it. And someone asked me if he could meet me. And it's a longer story, but it was too many coincidences for not to be supernaturally from the Lord. 
And that was when, after that meeting, he begged me in tears, you can't close Promise Keepers. You have, you don't know what it means. And on the, on the drive down to Colorado Springs um, is when I just, the Lord just downloaded AT&T Stadium, 2020. And it's interesting too, you know, you, you, you stop. We were the last one standing last year. I said, we're not going to cancel, period. And I made a video saying that. And the governor's office of Texas called me and said, you are going to cancel. We were the last ones that had anything going. And you sort of think, well, Lord, I know I heard you say 2020. Like, what in the world? Well, we had 45 days to put together a virtual event. And we had 1.2 million people watch that live in 84 countries. So the God turned around and made it massively bigger than I ever could have known. And so it's just so, you know, it's Oswald Chambers says that, that living in the spirit is delightful uncertainty. And, uh, you know, just living in each moment, looking for downloaded instructions. And someone said to me, well, what if, what if Dallas Cowboy Stadium isn't sold out? What if this, what if that? And I said, you know, I think the two favorite words of the devil are what if, and, who said that God called us to be successful according to the world's terms? I mean, you look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a guy who God says, I'm going to make your life a delight to you. Well, it doesn't sound like a delight. Jeremiah is walking around naked for three years with an ox yoke on him and telling them what's going to happen. And then finally, when it does happen and the Babylonians surround Jerusalem, He's telling the king again, okay, I just told you what was going to happen. Now, here's what you need to do. The king lowers him into a sewer for four days by his wrists, waist deep in, in human waste. And when he finally gets brought up, the Babylonians come in, and again, what he said was going to happen. And finally, when they take everybody away, and only the dregs of society are left, that was not even worthy of being taken as slaves, they all want to go to Egypt. And Jeremiah's like, no, 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 don't do that after he's been, you know, right time and time and time again, and they beat him up. So you look at Jeremiah's life and you're like, it was an utter failure by human standards. And that's what I've been trying to teach people through this promise keepers thing in the last few years is we cannot look at things through human eyes. We don't know why God called us. Isaiah, who predicted the coming Messiah, was sawn in two, tied to a tree and sawn in two, starting from his crotch and going up to his head. Doesn't sound like a success to me. But boy, I'll tell you what, when we get to heaven, Isaiah is going to have a whole lot of crowns, and I wish I could have been at his level. And so we just got to obey the Lord. And so last year, 2020, at, for, at the time, I'm like, Lord, you said 2020. This is a mess. 1.2 million people watched that. And the letters we got of the lives that were transformed, the people who got saved, we had 300 people in Sierra Leone. I had to look and see where is Sierra Leone. You know, we had 100,000 people in India watch the event last year. I didn't know there were 100,000 Christians in India. So it's really phenomenal um, what the Lord has done. That's amazing. And, you know, I've heard so much of this story through you. And, of course, I've, I've been reading through your book. And uh, tell us a little bit about what brought you to write the book that you wrote, because I think it fits in line with what we're talking about here, because I learned from the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, the founder of the Christian Men's Network, who had been a spiritual father. I know Coach McCartney said that uh, Dr. Cole was like the father of the modern-day men's movement, etc. But he used to say that Christ-likeness and manhood are synonymous. And he said, being born a male is a matter of birth, but being a man is a matter of choice. I think you've made a lot of choices based on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit getting a revelation of what the Lord has spoken to you, that even when it seemed like the conditions were not favorable, 
God has uniquely gifted you to be able to maneuver through unfavorable situations for the sake of advancing the kingdom. Share a little about how that connects and the uh, message God gave you through your book. I've often said, if, if you don't think you're unworthy when God calls you, then God probably didn't call you. You know, the ultimate example is Moses, so convinced that he was going to do something great for God that he murders a guy, beats him to death. And Moses, he would have been trained. He was a prince of Egypt. He would have been completely trained in hand-to-hand combat. He would have been able to give you a wrestling match stringer when you were in your prime. You know, so he knew what he was doing. When I, when I was in my prime? <laughs> for the car wreck. Um, he knew what he was doing you know, 40 years in the desert. And when God finally calls him and goes on for two chapters about all the great things he's going to do through Moses, Moses's response is pick somebody else. That That's the response of somebody who's really been called by the Lord. It's not, oh, I'm the, the big man. It's going to have the big church. Instead, it's who me. For me, after that moment of relaunching Promise Keepers, and then I started to realize the depth of this thing, how beloved the name is. I, I was like, oh no, like, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. And that was when the Lord, you know, again, he doesn't speak to me that often, uh, you know, so I'm telling you all the times he has, but he said to me, suddenly it was like a voice behind my ear. It said, I've been preparing you for this your whole life. And he has, you know, and you look at the LAPD, I was a cop in South Central Los Angeles, uh, which is Watts, Compton area, the extreme high crime area. And I saw the devastation that comes from fatherless boys. You know, the people of South Central Los Angeles are great people. They are very neighborly. They love each other. They look out for each other. Um, everyone goes to church. Everyone comes home after church and has a big barbecue. It, it really uh, is an amazingly warm place to be. But those people, 90% of them are held hostage by 10% of vicious thugs. The crime is horrific. The, the crips and the bloods were at each other's throats. Um, and I used to see the women on their hands and knees at seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning. We we're getting ready to get off of work scrubbing the blood off the sidewalk in front of their houses. So I saw the destruction. I also saw death everywhere. And there's some stories in that book, you know, of me holding people in my arms and watching them die. Something about that when you're a young man at 21, 22 years old, it gives you a different perspective than most people have. Both you see the devastation of sin and you also see how tenuous life is. And we need to hold things loosely because people die and they die all the time. And I remember... Well, I was on the LAPD and I was on vacation up with my family somewhere and we heard a loud thud and a motorcycle had hit. The guy took a left turn in front of a motorcycle and he went into the side of a van at 50 miles an hour. And um, I saw him. You can tell when someone's dying because they start to twinge. There's a it's not like in the movies. And um, I looked out the window of the restaurant, saw him, saw the impact, saw him start to twinge. And I said, well, he's dead. You know, my family all ran out there and I remember my brother coming back in and going, dude, I mean, the guy just died and you just didn't even react. There's nothing, you know, this is before cell phones. I'm like, I mean, he's dead. 750,000 people per day die across the world. And I didn't cry for any of them because I didn't know him. And I didn't know that guy on that motorcycle either. And there's a coldness, but also a sort of a, an awareness of mortality that changes you as a young man to when you get to be in your mid fifties, like I am now, you start to realize that the opinions of people just don't freaking matter. What, you know, what we hold on to, our pride, um, trying to make sure that um, we hold on to these things. I, I'm shocked at how much people are filled with fear and concern for what other people think. And so that led me, you know, as the Lord telling me, I've been preparing you for this your whole life, a lot of success in global business. A couple of years ago, as I was really getting Promise Keepers relaunched, 
I had a leader, Christian leader sit down with me and just go, dude, you are so bold. I can't believe like you're doing this. What, what guts it takes on and on and on. And I said, let me ask you a question. If promise keepers was to be in a failure, like if the worst was to happen, what's the worst that would happen to me? He said, I don't know. I said, I'd look really stupid. I mean, I said, think about our heritage. We have people burned alive, sawn in two, skinned alive. Um, every torture that we can imagine. Hebrews talks about people having everything that they've ever earned taken away from them. Is our new description of boldness the fact that I might look dumb? Because I don't think that should be our description of courageousness. And that's led me to think about what we need to do at Promise Keepers, because I do believe that men, all people, but it starts with men, have lowered our standard of courage so low now that a Christian leader is telling me, holy cow, how bold you must be because you're actually risking something where you might fail. That, that, is, a, that is a bad standard. I won't say his name because I don't want to humiliate him. Your book, The Rise of the Servant Kings, and the subtitle uh, is What the Bible Says About Being a Man. And you mentioned, and I want to gear off of that, you mentioned the importance of courageous manhood. So why is godly and courageous manhood so important today in light of the divisiveness, the political unrest, the, the pandemics, all the increase of shakings? Why, in the midst of all that, is it so important to have godly and courageous manhood? You know what's funny about courage? is It's the one virtue that's not actually a virtue. Like, courage isn't really a thing. It's an action. We describe somebody who's courageous as it, is somebody we observe doing what needs to be done despite the risks, right? Or you know, cowardice is simply somebody who doesn't do what needs to be done. And it's ironic because in Revelation 21.8, the Lord lists the eight types of people that will be thrown into the lake of fire. He starts with cowards. I, I wouldn't want to be a coward. And we look at today at the church, at the pastors that are not speaking out against abortion. 60 million souls killed in this country in the last 50 years. You think of those 60 million souls who are crying out for justice to the Lord under his throne. And it's interesting, you know, you look in Revelation, it says the, the great harlot is drunk on the blood of the saints. But really that the word saints can be a lot of things, and it could actually be translated innocence. The great harlot is drunk on the blood of the innocents. What if the great harlot is the United States and the blood that she's drunken on is the unborn? So we look at what's going on around us, murder of our babies. Now we look at the brainwashing that's going on with our children. We have first graders being asked what pronouns I'd like to be called by. And we have that jury in Dallas that said that a woman could forcibly make her boy wear a dress. And he goes to his father, they're divorced now, and he's a boy, known as a boy. But when he goes back to the mom, the mom has assisted the girl calls him by female pronouns. And that jury said that she could give him chemicals that would inhibit his puberty and, and permanently damage his body. Now, thank God, Governor Abbott, your governor stepped in and said no. But who's standing up right now? Who's standing up for this wickedness that's going on? So we need to have men who are courageous. And in order to be courageous, we have to know, well, what are we courageous for? we got to know God's word. Because if we don't know God's word, then we're not really sure when we're being lied to and what do we need to stand up for. And I think one of the biggest problems and standards we see right now in the church is people don't know his word. The pastors, I'm making an overly general statement, there are amazing pastors out there. But too many pastors haven't been preaching real godliness, really his word. And so the people now are left without a real vision. And I was uh, up with a bunch of Christian leaders on a fishing trip 
a bunch of well-known leaders and there were some younger guys there. There was like three guys in their twenties. There were some well-known musicians or something. I, I don't know who these people are. So I didn't know who they were, but apparently they were well-known. And they started talking about scripture, these three men for the next three nights around the campfire. They would just want to go down and learn scripture for me. And I would just teach them and they would hungrily listen. It was really amazing how much they would absorb. But on the third night, they said, you know, the older men aren't teaching us any of this. We don't know any of these things that you're telling us. And I said, you know, that's a huge travesty because if the Bible commands older women teach the younger women and older men teach the younger men. But also you can read. And the fact that you're so ignorant of scripture is your problem. So, so don't sit around blaming other people because that talking about courage is one of the things that's snuck into the church, not only a lowering standard of what is courage, but also a victimization mentality that I believe men are particularly when they're not walking with scripture and with the Lord adept to, because it goes all the way back to the fall. When Adam is sitting next to Eve, watching her eat that fruit, waiting to see what's going to happen to her as like a coward. And then when God comes to him afterwards and says, Adam, what did you do? What is Adam's response? That woman you made did it. So it's your fault and her fault. I'm just a victim. I mean, that was the very first sin that ever happened was a man blaming his wife and God. And so we have got to call men back to a higher standard of courage, which begins with humility, Doug, as you know from the book. The humility is the outward expression of someone who's in love with Jesus. I love the, uh, in fact, I wrote an article a few years ago on uh, no more sour grapes. And you mm -hmm. alluded to that where Adam blamed his wife and then ultimately said that you gave me God. He ultimately was blaming God for the wife and, and the actions instead of taking responsibility. I've learned through Ed Cole and others that maturity is not based on age, but on the willingness to accept responsibility. As I was processing that in sour grapes in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it says, no longer can you make this excuse because the fathers ate of sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. And the point that God is making through scripture is that you can blame your circumstances, blame other people, blame your fathers, blame others. But reality is you're responsible for the choices you make when you have those opportunities in front of you. And I think that's a part of courage, isn't it? Because it's not something that we are born with. Or even uh, leadership skills and courage is not what we're born with. It's what we walk into and take responsibility at the time of crisis. And we look at a nation in crisis. We see a generation in crisis. And what a great opportunity for courageous men to rise up, to be men of humility, and yet with confidence. Because uh, humility does not mean that we are self-defacing. But humility comes with a confidence in God, not in self or in flesh. So it comes with a confidence when we understand who is calling us into that place of responsibility. I was uh, looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, talks about that the time will come uh, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And I really believe that the time is now, the time has come. And that we're in that time where it's important for godly men, courageous men to rise up. May not feel We may feel ill-equipped, but that's not what Paul is telling Timothy. He says, look, I'm going to ask you to be able. I'm saying, would you be faithful and willing and available so I can equip you to be able to do what you're doing? The message we have to change. I was just speaking to, I, I go around speaking all the time. Boy, I tell you what, just as an aside, I spoke to about 500 uh, San Antonio and Austin cops on Saturday night. Gosh. We talked about how much God loves justice and how much God loves people who stand for justice. And they were so encouraged. But to see how deflated they were, especially the Austin policemen. Holy cow. 
what's been going on with them. But speaking to men, you know, I've often said to them, I set them up a little bit and say, you know, are men being attacked today by culture? Are they, is masculinity being attacked? Absolutely. I said, no, we're not. We're not being attacked. The world's not attacking men. The world's attacking women. And Satan is using men to do it. And it always kind of puts them back in their seat. I said, listen, when men are screwed up, it's women and children who suffer the price. Yeah, men end up as a residual getting nailed too. Satan gets a twofer. But Satan has been after women forever. He's been destroying femininity forever. He's been destroying the, the beauty of motherhood and diminishing women for who they are in femininity. And women are being told that the only um, real woman is an artificial man, you know, a woman who runs out. When we, we depict a strong woman, we always pick a woman in a man's role. It's, it's, hor- it's horrible what we're doing. The reason that's so important is because if men think they're being attacked, they will go into victim mode and they will go to where they are. Apathy, whining. Well, they might as well just sit around and surf porn because no one likes me anyway. But when men understand it's their wives and their daughters that are being attacked, then they'll do something. We got to call men up. You got to start to stand for truth because who are our daughters going to marry when you start looking at the state of these boys today? You start looking at boys who are looking at pornography before they've even hit puberty, their idea of what sex is. And then they've been now been raised in an era of sexual perversion with a completely wrong view of what a woman is and what a woman wants. And then they get to college. And a woman in the bar actually has the nerve to say no. Well, pornography never says no. And then they act out and they, they sexually abuse a woman and, and the, the world is shocked. Oh my goodness, how did that happen? Are you kidding me? We've been programming our boys from their youth to abuse women. And then the world acts shocked. This is why Christian men must stand up with courage and start to call this stuff out. And, and you see it, the, the definition of apathy in men There are 127 suicides a day in the United States of America. 80% of those are middle-aged men because they've lost their way. They've lost their identity. They don't know what they stand for. We've got to get them off this, this dang victimhood, whiny mentality and start to tell them your wives and your kids are counting on you. That's what you need to live for. But Satan right now is just having his way with the church. We've got to get men back into scripture and start teaching them real courage, who Jesus Christ really was. Amen. And I was looking again in 2 Timothy 2, 4, and it talks about fulfilling your ministry. And it goes on to say to not just preach the word, but to be instant in season and out of season. And I like what the Amplified Version says in 2 Timothy 4, uh, 2. It says, keep your sense of urgency, be at hand and ready, whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable whether it is convenient or inconvenient, whether it be welcome or unwelcome. In other words, to be instant means to be at hand, to stand by, to be prepared, ready, keeping your sense of urgency. And notice that to be instant in and out of season may not always be favorable, convenient, or welcomed. It does seem today that men, two things here that you brought up, and I I made me think about this, is that we need to recognize we may not feel capable we may not feel equipped, but yet God is calling us to step it up at this time to be available to him and to be led of his Holy Spirit. And the second thing is that you alluded to about men being responsible is that men who are secure in their identity in Christ, remember Christ's likeness and manhood are synonymous. So men who are secure in their relationship with Christ are not intimidated by, threatened by, or insecure by 
the gifts of women, but we celebrate them. So in other words, celebrating the giftings that are in women, celebrating their capacity, celebrating who they are, releases something in them because a blessing or honor and honoring in others releases blessing to us. So when we value one another and not condescending each other, but value one another as the children of the Lord, and we value who women are in our families, I think it'll cause men to rise up to a place of respectability and others who are wanting to be connected because of their willingness to take responsibility. Amen. Don't keep preaching, man. I got nothing to say to that. (laughs) Well, well, part of, you know, as you know, my biological father was a frogman during the Korean War. Of course, crossover, they became Navy SEALs when he was in the Vietnam War. But portion of the Navy SEALs ethos is talked about partnering with other special forces teams. And they may feel common, but they're willing to do uncommon things. And it goes on to say that in times of crisis, they rise up to stand together, partner together for a nation and for our families. And then then they end up saying it like this, says, I am that man. In other words, I may not be qualified. I might not be the best, but I am going to rise up and take responsibility. I am that man. And that's where we have men today that I think what you're getting ready to do at Promise Keepers in Dallas, you said it's been 20 years, amazing how time flies. And yet it is a time, you know, Luke 21, Jesus speaks of all the things that will be happening in the latter days and it talks about pandemics. It talks about earthquakes and it talks about shakings. It talks about ethnos, race against race. It talks about kingdom against kingdom. In the midst of that, Jesus, his own words in Luke 21, verse 13 says, but it shall be an occasion for your testimony. What a great opportunity in the midst of a world that is so out of control and lawlessness and divisiveness. What a great opportunity for men to cross the racial, denominational, generational lines, meeting at the cross of Christ together, and to be who God called them to be. This is a time for courageous men to rise up. Amen. And also, you were quoting the twins of the Timothys. First Timothy 4 also talks about the fact that in the last days, people will follow after the teachings of demons. Mm-hmm. And so there we are. I think the other thing we need to start to bring out one of the reasons why men are checking out of the church is because, again, we've taught an incomplete gospel. It, essentially, the, the message that kind of is out there within the greater evangelical church is that if you said the magic prayer, then you're saved and you can't lose your salvation. And so you're just going to go to heaven. So then you're done. And we forget it means born again. You're now a baby. You now get to start actually living life when you've actually received Christ. But instead, we teach this, you've, you've taught the magic prayer, so you go to all these seeker-friendly churches, which is nowhere in Scripture is there a seeker-friendly church. The church is where believers are to come to be sharpened and armed with the Scripture and teaching. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us slanderers, gossips, the greedy, sexually perverse, adulterers, throw them out of your assembly, don't even eat with such people. Well, you know, gosh, that doesn't sound like the modern church today. We're not throwing greedy people out of our churches. So the church is supposed to be where people come and get deep teaching. The church is not where people come in to get saved. We've got incorrectly gotten this message of come and see, come and see, come and see our fog machines and our really great musical program and our laser light show. And then our lukewarm message that will will not offend anybody. That's not the Bible. The Bible's go and tell. We're supposed to be out on the streets witnessing to people. You know, my wife, I called her. She went to a Franklin Graham rally a few years ago. This is just so her. And I called her and, hey, how'd the rally go? She goes, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? She goes, well, I got there. There was 40,000 people there. And I figured, 
you know, there was enough for that to be a success. So I just decided to go down and feed the homeless. So she went down, grabbed 30 bucks, went, went and got 30 hamburgers at McDonald's, fed them to the homeless and led four homeless people to the Lord. That's the church. That's a woman of God who's strong. You know, I said, next time, would you please bring a gun or something? Because a lot of those people are nuts, or at least bring me. But, you know, there's my faith, right? But we are supposed to be going and telling. And the message that we're telling our men then is there is a lack of justice in the kingdom. Because the message that comes down from that is, wait a minute. If I live my life selfishly, if I rip people off, if I cheat on my wife, I, I do everything selfishly. I just die and go to heaven and I go to the same heaven as the apostle Paul who was stoned to death and shipwrecked and whipped and beheaded. That doesn't sound right. Well, it doesn't sound right because it isn't right because the Bible is very clear that we're going to be judged of the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians five ten says we will all stand the Christians before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the deeds done in the body, whether good or worthless. The best translations say worthless, not bad, because the bad was forgiven. But Jesus, and he goes on and on at the end of Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25, talks about the fact that he's going to demand an accounting for each one of us about what we did with the salvation he gave us. We're not going to be judged on our sin. It was forgiven, but we will be judged. And I believe, and I'm writing a book on this for HarperCollins right now called The Judgment Seat of Christ, that we will be punished at the Judgment Seat of Christ. Jesus says, to the man who, or to the one who knows what to do and doesn't do it, he will be beaten severely with many blows. But to the one who doesn't know what to do and doesn't do it, he'll be beaten lightly. Well, I don't think Jesus is down there beating people who are already in like a fire. It sounds to me he's talking to Christians. He says in the end of Matthew 24, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who goes on a long journey. And his slave says in his heart, or excuse me, when he comes back from that journey and he finds his slaves serving him, I tell you the truth, he will be rewarded greatly. But if that slave, he's talking about one person who is the slave of the king, only Christians are the slave of the king. If that slave in his heart says, my king has gone on a long journey, I don't want him to be back. So he begins to eat and drink with drunkards and to beat his fellow slaves. I tell you the truth, he will be cut into pieces and thrown in the outer darkness with the hypocrites. Well, what does that mean? I mean, to eat and drink in drunkards means to you know, live a party and to live it for yourself. To beat your fellow slaves means to get other people to do your work. So other Christians had to do the work that you were supposed to do. Cut into pieces. What does that mean? Well, the word of God is sharper than a two-inched sword. Jesus says in Revelation, I'm going to come and fight against them with the sword that's in my mouth. So you're going to be cut into pieces by the truth of God's word and thrown in the outer darkness. What does that mean? I believe, and I'm in the minority on this, but I think the Bible's pretty clear on this, and hopefully I'll make a good case of it in the book that I'm writing, that that's outside the wedding feast that you will be thrown outside and you'll be looking at the lights of the wedding feast. And this is the, this is the parable of the 10 versions that just follows right after that. Five virgins have oil in their lamps. They're prepared. Five don't. And the five that don't are outside. And Jesus says, I don't know you. Where are they at? They're outside the wedding feast. They're not in hell. So I believe that this teaching for men that your life matters greatly. What you do after your salvation matters greatly. You will be judged. Second Corinthians, people quote uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, and it's not of yourself, it's a free gift. That's right. But what does Ephesians 2, 10 say right after that? We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So every one of us has a plan that God has prepared in our life based on our gifts. And we are going to be judged by how well we carried out that plan he had for us. And I tell you, 
Doug, I want to do everything God has for me. I want every reward, every crown he has. I want to live my life for an audience of one so that I know when I get to heaven, Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we know he's going to say to other people, you worthless, wicked, lazy slave. I don't want to be that guy. I'm preaching, man. I'm sorry, man. No, no, that's great. Because it, it really stirred something, some thought here, because uh, one of my theological mentors is Dr. Randall Pinnell, who's now working with Dr. A.R. Bernard, helping with his seminary. I first met Dr. Randall Pinnell when he was at Houston Baptist University, did Bible studies for me, and then he went on to Regent University, and then he was the acting president for quite a few years at North Greenville University. But he taught me the three words for the sins in the Old Testament that really has New Testament uh, correlation. And you said that uh, to those to do, to do right and do not do it. That's an act of rebellion, really, right? And so rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. But in the Old Testament, the three words he uses for sin was pesha, hata, and avan. Pesha means to know to do right and not to do it. It means the, the act of your will to habitually sin and willfully sin against God when you know to do right. That is rebellion. The second sin is called hata. Hata is to miss the mark. You know, it's kind of like when you go in to shoot a, or do an archery you're gonna, and you miss the bullseye, you, you miss the mark. And so we all miss the mark throughout the day. It's not intentional, but we all miss the mark. And the third is called avon. It's spelled avon, A-V-O-N, but it's avon, which means iniquities. And it seems this last year and a half with pandemics and other crises that we've been dealing with and seeing the optics of it, that has exposed a lot in us in the church as men and women that has exposed uh, what is the Avon, which is the iniquities. We can sometimes stuff it, hide it. We don't see it because uh, we've kept it inside. We had that compensatory facade that we're hiding under this mask on the outside. But yet we have under pressure, which magnifies, has brought to the surface a lot of the Avon or the iniquities of our heart that even King David says, he says, Lord, would you please even show me my hidden sins, my presumptuous sins, so that I might get right with you in my paraphrase. Uh, the fact is, I think it's exposed a lot of the Avon and also the Pesha, where we've seen so many who know to do right, but willfully uh, turn against the, the will of God, the commandments of God, and end up being a part of the swing of the societal pendulum rather than being a part of the plumb line or rooted in that plumb bob in the place of being tethered to God himself and in his word. Amen. Uh, we have an old cliche we used to use in business. They don't see the evil that they do. You know, you have employees who are just a nightmare and they don't even know they're a nightmare. Those are the iniquities to the first word. And I'm sorry, man, I, I'm not even gonna try to get those words down. But to the first word, the re rebellious sin, the witchcraft, Hebrews chapter 10 really speaks to that. And Hebrews chapter 10 really confuses people because there's two kind of sort of camps in the in the Protestantism, which is um, you could almost call it Wesley and Whitfield if you want. But um, the Wesley, you can lose your salvation. And the Whitfield, well, you can't lose your salvation no matter what. And, and when you read Hebrews chapter 10, it's really inconvenient for both of those camps. The only thing that makes sense is when you realize you can't lose your salvation, but you will be judged based on what you did. And when you understand that and you read Hebrews chapter 10, it all makes sense because Hebrews 10 is terrifying. It ta it's talking about believers who are rebellious or, or knowingly sinning against God. And it really culminates in Hebrews chapter 10, or yeah, chapter 10, verse 31. It says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, mm -hmm. so you, this is what? 
These are believers who've died, who have been living in utter rebellion against God. And it says it's a terrible thing to fall into those hands. I don't know what that means. I'm not preaching purgatory or anything else. I'm just saying what scripture says. And then Hebrews 10, 38. So seven verses later, it says, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. I love that scripture, you know, in 10, 26, where it says, if we sin willfully or habitually, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains a fearful expectation of fiery judgment. And the two key points for me that I've looked at in 40 years of ministry for me personally, my walk is one that I've trampled underfoot and profaned the holy blood of Jesus. Yes. And secondly, that I have trampled underfoot the spirit of grace. So, you know, I am walking in grace every day. I'm, I am literally uh, an example of God's abounding, amazing, great grace as all we are on this call and, and others. But at the same time, I also don't want to take for granted that spirit of grace, nor do I want to trample and make unholy or profane the holy blood of Jesus. So we pull this back from the from the theological that we've gone into back to the men discussion, and we see now why this makes such a big difference in the church. Because when I realize that I will be judged based on what I did, now I see a sense of justice and fairness. Oh, so those, you know, Mother Teresa who laid down her life for the lepers actually is going to be rewarded for that. Yes, she is. And, you know, the schmuck that that did all those bad things is actually going to pay the punishment. Yes, he is. And then we start to see, oh, now my life really matters. And there are people who are really counting on me. And so all the suffering that I'm going to go through, Hebrews again says, Jesus learned obedience to his father through suffering. I don't know what that means. Other than it says he learned obedience through suffering. So somehow, as a boy or whatever, Jesus learned um, how to truly be obedient. And of course, he never sinned. But to be able to listen to the word of the Father through pain, and we know that God teaches us through pain. It is the American way, the Western way, to avoid pain at all costs. And I always say that we act like our the goal of our life is to arrive as, to arrive as safely as possible at death. You know, and this whole COVID thing kind of betrayed that, right? Like the terror we saw some people in, like... You know, and it didn't matter that Stanford came out with a study that said that masks had absolutely zero effectiveness at stopping a virus. I still was flying back from San Antonio on Sunday night wearing a stinking mask on United Airlines, even though it says, you know, no one listen to the science unless it disagrees with me, then forget the science. But when we start to teach our, our people, the church, what was always known throughout the early church and really the Reformation, we got to had people take these sides really makes a difference in our lives of what we're doing. And it will matter. We will be rewarded. We will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We will reign with him based on what we did with our salvation. And we will suffer loss if we haven't done those things. We won't reign with him. We won't be co-heirs. We'll be heirs, but not co-heirs. Big difference. You start reading scripture through those eyes. You see it everywhere in scripture. Jesus is just saying over and over again, and we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. That whole sermon is taught only to his disciples. He goes away from the crowd and he teaches this just to his disciples where he's talking about blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Why? Because he's talking about rewards. He's talking about what will happen in heaven. This is where he talks about take the narrow road, not the wide road. He's talking to people who are already saved. So is he talking about earning your way to heaven? No. He's talking to people who have already understood that they're going to only by his grace are they going to get to heaven. But now what are we going to do with it? That's why I want to take the narrow road. That's why I want to go through pain, because I want to be as close to Jesus Christ in heaven as I can be. And if I've wasted my life, 
I will not be at that same level. I'd like you to share a little bit more about the details and we'll put it on a link as well. The upcoming Promise Keepers event in Dallas, but also the negative effect on pastors and police officers in today's culture and how to stand strong. I know we've talked about standing strong in our Christian faith, but maybe even using an example, if, if you have time, about your own personal area of how you've overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony that uh, because of challenges, we all meet unexpected detours. We all go through things we did not expect. And yet being able to maneuver through that in times of difficulties. I know a lot of my friends that, that I've talked to and pastors, I just came back from, from the East Coast and Pennsylvania and, and Baltimore, Maryland, speaking to lots of pastors and leaders from around the country and around the world. And many of them are just, they're just burnt out. There's so many that are bailing because they're just tired. And how do we as pastors and as ministry leaders, business leaders, as Christians, be able to maneuver through this unexpected detours we're living in and hold on to our Christian faith, but tie that into why this Promise Keepers event, when and, uh, and how you believe this will actually be a catalytic moment to help us to find that strength again in our faith. You're testing my skills, man, about how well I'm going to be able to put that short and, and wait. <laughs> yeah. um, when I was a copper in South Central LA, it was, it was a couple of weeks after Rodney King, and um, we were just getting blitzed. I mean, it was brutal. The, the press was running everywhere. And, and like I said, I was in South Central LA, and my partner and I saw a gangster get off the bus. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon with a gun, and he took off running across the intersection. So um, my partner was driving, he hit the gas, we went across the intersection. Um, we had a way of taking people down, which I don't think was department policy, but if you were in the car, you'd go by him and open the car door hard and knock him down. So he knocks him down and he dives out and I dive out over the hood of the car. As I come over the hood of the car, my partner's got his hand in one arm with the gun up in the air and his gun in the other. And so then I've got my gun in my hand and I come down and I've got my left hand free. So we wrestled with this kid for about 30 seconds before finally able to get the gun away from him. And it was really awkward because there was a big crowd that immediately gathered. It was three in the afternoon. And so we had to keep the gun pointed straight up in the air because if the gun went backwards and he pulled the trigger, he's going to hit somebody. So we were literally having to fight in this really awkward situation. And both of us had our guns in his, on his head the whole time. Both of us would have been completely justified to pull the trigger at any point. Afterwards, we looked up, we get him handcuffed, and there's a television crew there, which it turns out, they had been on the street and they'd seen us chasing him across the intersection. So they'd filmed the entire thing from the beginning to end. And as we're hooking this kid up and we can hear them interviewing the people and all the people that were saying those officers risked their lives to save that kid. I mean, he, they, they should have killed him. They should have pulled the trigger. I mean, if he would have gotten that gun free, he would have shot one of them, but they stayed with it. And he's still alive because of those two officers. And we could hear this, going on multiple people like shocked because after all the bad press of Rodney King and we were in the middle of all that um, in Los Angeles and it ran, it ran, it, all, all this kind of went on for about 20 minutes until we finally got this kid taken away. And we went back to the station and we go, oh man, this is gonna be so great because it's such a great news story, you know, and so needed by the people of the community to see the policemen ser serving and protecting like we're supposed to. It never ran, never ran. I mean, talk about great news. Like you're seeing this whole fight, it's a happy ending, great witnesses, it never ran. This is the kind of bitterness that lays into our police officers is they see this day in and day out a lack of justice. And in a, in a culture that is in decline, when you start to get towards the bottom of the decline, you start to lose your love of justice. 
and your love of truth. And so the, the officers, the police officers in this country are on the front lines of seeing lie after lie after lie and people going after and blaming the victim rather than the bad guy. So we got to help them. This whole Promise Keepers event, I believe, is a catalytic moment in the church history and in America because America is declining with the church. We're calling men up and, and out. We're, the theme of this is called Stand Strong. One of the speakers is A.R. Bernardo, you mentioned a couple of times, is also on our board. He's going to give a very strong talk on race that won't be what most people think. It will be very, A.R. Bernard is a brilliant man. He's half Guatemalan, half black, and he was a, a Nation of Islam guy who got saved. So he's a very unique perspective, and he's a brilliant thinker, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. So we're going to give men, call them back to their identity in Christ, give them permission to be men again. And I believe this is the beginning of a revival. Not We're not the reason for the revival. We're just simply a point of beginning of a revival that's going to happen across the world. And then I pray and I hope it's because Jesus is coming back soon. And you look at the technology, this event that we're showing, it's going to be simulcast all over the world. It's going to be translated in real time into nine different languages. So literally, as I'm speaking, somebody will be able to hear me speaking in Farsi in real time. Wow. You think about that advancement in technology. We're at Tower of Babel kind of stuff. I believe we're closing that gap where every year in the world will have heard the gospel and then Jesus can come back. I really believe this is the beginning of the end in all the good ways that we hope to see and a, a real harvest of souls. But we, it's got to start with waking men up and reminding them who they are. Amen. Did I do that? Did I pull that off in five minutes? You did great. And um, I'm going to ask Apostle Kevin Barber, longtime friend uh, who's on the call, if he'll close us in prayer in a moment. Ken, I want to thank you so much for taking, I know how you're on the, you're on this final stretch right now with the PK event. You want to just tell us again the dates and location and how people can get involved and participate. Thanks, because I never said it the first time. That would have been a huge oversight. It's, it's July 16th and 17th, so we have uh, three weeks. July 16th and 17th, um, which is a Friday night and a Saturday morning at Dallas Cowboy Stadium. Sorry for all you Texan fans. Dallas Cowboy Stadium. Uh, you can register at promisekeepers.org. And for the women who are watching this, over 40% of the tickets that were sold to Promise Keepers in the 90s were sold to women who bought them to send their husbands and their sons. Wow. So I would encourage you, get your men there. Men, get there and bring friends. You know, I don't know what tickets are, like 90 bucks or something. I mean, buy a ticket. And tell your neighbor, hey, I, I just bought you a ticket to come to this thing at Dallas Cowboy Stadium. We got to go together. I mean, it's hard for hard to turn down your neighbor when he just paid a you know $90 ticket for you or something. So yeah, come, you know, um, and by the way, we live in such a cynical time. Based on all of our sales, it'll still we'll still lose a million dollars on the deal. So ain't nobody making money on this. Everybody, I don't make a penny off of promise keepers, and I'm our biggest giver. So just FYI and all that, the reason we charge is to help defray the costs. And also because we've learned the hard way that men don't value what they don't pay for. So we're asking men to pay for tickets because Promise Keepers actually went bankrupt originally because they stopped charging for tickets and stadiums went from being completely full and sold out to men snatching up all the tickets and then two thirds of them not showing up. And so that's why we charge for the tickets. Well, thank you, Ken. And after Kevin Barber, if you will close us in prayer and also would you just pray for the Promise Keepers event and more importantly, for men who, at a time such as this, from every nation, as the Bible says in Acts 17, from every nation, one blood, that we are at a time where we, the church, 
needs to be seen in the optics of the world as being of every nation. And even in our diversity, we can have authentic unity in something bigger than any of us. Yes. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate your leadership. Thank you, Ken, for sharing. Really appreciate you saying yes uh, to the Lord regarding promise keepers. Uh, We just give God praise for you. Father, we do love you. And we thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given us in this time, this season. Father, to arise, to arise to a call. Uh, Father, that is being made from heaven for a man to stand in the gap, to make up a hedge, to build a wall uh, between that which this culture and the enemy that is behind the God of this world, that is behind the the, the diabolical and demonic culture that is arising in these last days, you have put out a call to men. And I'm grateful, Father, there are men that are answering to that call. There are men that are sitting, that are scared, that are broken, that are disappointed, that are, Lord God, just hopeless. But there is a call going out that they're hearing by the Spirit of God, and they're saying yes. Thank you, Father, for gathering men together in a season where wives are calling out, children are calling out. They're asking for change. They're asking for direction. They're asking for leadership. And you're bringing men together for that. And we ask, Father, by your spirit that you would continue to move, Father, throughout this nation, around the world, and begin to, Lord God, by your spirit, bring conviction to the hearts of men that you have ordained for such a time as this, to, Father, to take their place, Father, through humility and through brokenness and serving and begin to lead their families, lead their country, lead their nation, lead their cities. Father, as we demonstrate the love of God and advance your kingdom, we give you praise and glory. We pray blessing on this event. We thank you that it will bring together, Lord, men from across this nation or around the world. We just ask God that the word will continue to go out and that many will respond. And this will be a time, Father, as it has already been stated, of catalytic change for not only the body of Christ, before our nation. We love you. We trust you. We give you praise for Ken. Continue to give him wisdom, insight, understanding, clarity as we move towards this date and dates beyond. We give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Head over now to a wordinseasonpodcast.org and let us know how we're doing by taking a quick survey. If you need prayer today, reach out to prayer at somebodycares.org or you can call or text our 24-hour Somebody Cares America prayer line, 855-459-CARE. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805 422 7348. Please join us again for a word in season with Doug Stringer and friends.